from American Awakening, this is Signs of Life. Hello, 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 America. Hey, hey. American Awakening bringing to you the best of faith and hope and love and light and life and black and white and Latino and Asian and young and old togetherness. That's what we've been doing every single day since we launched. We're so grateful you join us. I want to say a word of God's love to you today. He's got you. He's going to get you through the adversity, challenges and all that. And to remind us that from the get-go, we're going to have Josh Jacob, our house worship leader, bring us a word. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Joel, give us something from Florida 
see if you can match that from Josh Jacobs. Oh, I can't match it. There's no way. But welcome to your daily dose. Always trying to bring some light and life and hope. And today, specifically for my brother John Kingston, our uh, our host, our friend, our uh, one of our founders, who is while simultaneously one of the largest brained people I know and loves to think deep, is always pushing me to make it practical. So here we go. Super practical word on prayer today. Some people ask, how should I pray? A lot of people have asked that over over the years. And actually, some people ask Jesus. And in the Bible, he gives us what's become known as the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, if you're Catholic. Uh, It has a lot of different names. But I want to take this prayer and give you a really practical way that you can daily say this prayer in a way that maybe is a little deeper. Because I know, you know, it's easy to get into the ritual uh, and kind of miss some of the meaning. And so one of the things that's been really rich in my life is to, to say the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, but in each kind of segment to pause and reflect and add to that the things that are real for me that day. So let me give you an example. We're going to walk through it, and that's going to be your daily dose. So when you say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name, you can take a pause there and you can really worship God and, and talk about talk to God and speak out loud about how holy and amazing God is, perhaps about the creation, something you're seeing around you, something that really inspires awe of how holy God is and how other and amazing God is. So holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So thinking now specifically, what does the kingdom of God look like? How can I bring that to earth today as it is in heaven? And asking God to be a part of that. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Give us today our daily bread. What is it that you need today? And that's sometimes sustenance and provision and things and food, but it's also very often some kind of uh, special energy or some kind of special uh, uh, thing that you need for that day. For me, I might pray for a super productive day. My daily bread today, Lord, I'm asking for a really productive day today. So give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is a time when we can repent. We can ask God to forgive us of things that we've done. And we can specifically call to mind things that have been done against us. And we can forgive those people right that moment. We can forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we we say, God, in the areas that I'm tempted to sin or to walk away from you, lead me not there today. Lead me into your life and protect us from the evil one. Specifically pray against the schemes of Satan and his demons who come, I believe, and try to steal and kill and destroy and lie. And that's a time when you can pray for that. And then we can close it out by saying, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We give that glory to God and we say amen. So there's a practical way to say the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, as part of your prayer life. That's your daily dose. Back to you, John. That's fantastic, Joel. I mean, I I tell you, um, to uh, spend a a moment unpacking each one of those lines, and you did a great job. Each one of the bits, um, you know, spoke uh, truthfully to me, um, and it felt like an authentic way to think about uh, the way the Lord was teaching us to pray. Uh, And I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, I I need all the guidance I can get, so I'll, I'll take it. All right, Jeff Bethke. From Hawaii, give us some some Hawaiian counsel here. <laughs> Something to chew on. Hey guys, um, loved that from Joel. So encouraging, and I think it'll dovetail in in some way with what I want to talk about this morning too. Um, what I was thinking about as I was reading this morning for you guys today is uh, in the New Testament that phrase when it says. Well, a couple different places, but this concept of the one where it says that Jesus is the kind of the uh, the the image made visible of God, like he was the the invisible God is 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 found in the image of Jesus, and then another place where it says the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
in Jesus. And I think, of course, uh, if you're a Christian watching, you know, you know this in like mental ascent, but a lot of us don't let that actually sink in, that God is found fully in Jesus. What do I mean by that? I think there was a theologian that uh, said, I forget who it was, but I loved it, kind of said that like the Christian religion is one where we have the most kind of like uh, teeth to sink into a tangible reality, meaning it's not this ethereal, in the clouds, fuzzy, we can't really quite grasp God, who he's like, what he's like, we've heard about him, we've read about him. There is that, but God is in Jesus. So it's so tangible, it's so real, it's so embodied. And I think a lot of us, we don't chew on that enough. Um, I think there was another pastor where he kind of uses this phrase a lot where he says, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time where God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but now we do, talking about kind of when he shows up in the first century. Um, And that's just a really powerful thing that I think we need to realize. And so a lot of us, I think sometimes we default to this idea of asking, well, how would God answer that? Or what does he think about that? And sometimes that takes us in not the right direction. When I think another way to think about it is, well, do we see a very particular example in Jesus? Because God is like Jesus. God is in Jesus. So another way to put this a lot more simply is, do we realize that we actually have the power to know how God, the creator and the universe treats women, how he would have a conversation on money, uh, that we know exactly what God would do in regards to racial minorities because we see that with Gentile, Jews, Samaritans, some of these other different contexts playing out in the gospel. So there's so many examples where we have a very boots-on-the-ground example of like, oh my goodness, we actually know exactly how God would react in this situation. We know exactly what he would say. We know exactly what kind of tenderness, gentleness, spirit power that comes out of him in these moments because we have very specific examples. Now, that doesn't answer every question we ever ask, but it certainly gets us started in a lot stronger kind of centering aspect than a lot of us allow. So that's a bigger concept than sometimes I can pack in three or four minutes, but I still do think hopefully it's something to chew on and just gives us something to chew on that a lot of us, even as Christians, we still default to this cloudy, up-in-the-sky, God-like version when, no, we have a tangible reality found in Jesus. When you allow that to be true, it really informs and changes the way you go about every single day and the way you go about certain conversations and topics. So that's something to chew on. Back to you guys. I've never heard it said that way, Jeff. But it's true, though, and that's why I wanted to bring it to the to the conversation. It holds yourself more accountable and also gives you a little bit more kind of, again, teeth to sink into of actually, like, oh, this is helpful because I actually do have an answer. So it depends on which way your heart goes. It either makes it harder for you or easier, easier for you. It reminds me of a, a, a preacher that I heard, and he may have stolen from somebody else. But for those of us who believe that the Bible carries a lot of weight, you know, wherever you're at on the spectrum, the thing that he said was God has spoken and he has not stuttered. And I think there's a, there's yeah. a way in which like, yeah, he's, he's given us a whole lot about a whole lot of things, you know? Yeah. And I think one, one another place too, this plays out, I think to me is it changes sometimes your, your hermeneutic or how you even assess the scriptures from being what I've heard kind of a flat Bible. You know, a lot of us, we read it as more of a manual where you just go to, you know, table seven or table 14 for certain facts when really the Bible is, is it's, 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 it's inspired, but it's more like a ramp, right? That, that climaxes in Jesus. And so like, basically Jesus is the last word. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think a lot of us, we don't allow that to be true either. Do you know what I mean? That Jesus is the final and last word on certain things, you know, even in how we think about maybe take violence, for example, that's, you know, personal violence. A lot of people sometimes will go to the old Testament and say, well, what about this and that and that? It's like, well, Jesus is the last word. And he actually specifically addressed that with a better vision, and it's it's the final word. It's not two competing visions. It's this is the last vision, and this is the one we have to be obedient to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, so so first, uh, welcome uh, Joy Beth, 
Hi, guys. Great to have you, Dre Beth. So I want to take this one turn uh, more provocative. I take to heart everything you said, Jeff. It, it's it's really strong. It's really compelling. And it, it is a manual, um, you know, so to speak, a guide, you know, a, a, a guide, a storyline, a through line, a, you know, a beat, a tempo, whatever to, to, that you can follow in a whole bunch of situations. So what, what do you do with the fact that... Um, you know, Jesus, for the most part, the Son of God was dealing with real impersonal stuff, applying it, and and not. I mean, he's, he's speaking words of truth against the whole thing, but but not always talking about specific applications about how the system was off. I mean, it's the Roman Empire. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going down. You know, a lot of bad stuff going down, right? You know, so what do we what do you do with that bit? Um, anybody got a, a take on that? All right. Well, here's what I do. So I believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. So the original author ultimately is God. And then he spoke through these other people. So what I'm looking for, digging for here is God's intended meaning, the original author's meaning. And I'm looking for that like overarching principle, the the bridge that, that goes from their cultural context into ours. And the bridge is the co- the specific truth principle that applies across all times and all cultures. And so that's what I dig for and when I'm seeing, okay, yeah, this is a very specific cultural situation. I've got to figure out what in the way Jesus is speaking right now is a truth that is that applies to me in New York City or Gainesville, Florida, just as much as it did in, in uh, Jerusalem at that time. So that's how I that's how I go for it is look for that, that truth. I'm totally with you on that. So it's it's the it's the absence of commentary on things like infanticide, right? Um, infanticide, mm-hmm. you know, was a big thing at that time. I, what do you do with that? I, you know, it's, it's a, that, that's why I'm getting provocative because I don't, I, I honestly don't know the answer. Um, I'm, I'm not sort of like, I'm not positing anything here. I'm, I'm legitimate. This is a legitimate search for inquiry for truth. Help somebody. Yeah, my brother, uh, he is he just got his Old Testament PhD at Wheaton, which is fantastic. And so I am no expert, but I listen to him ramble a lot of times. And so I'm going to just inject what I would imagine he would say here, which is there are lots of things that the Bible doesn't address directly, um, but that the whole thing, like the whole Bible and every story in it actually tells a lot about like who God is, which speaks to what Jeff was saying earlier. And so for instance, for like infanticide, we don't have a direct address of that. But what we do know is that God like intentionally loves and creates people and expects us to intentionally love them as well. And so from that, we can extrapolate out all kinds of things about how maybe we shouldn't then kill people uh, or whatever else it may be, you know, like we should, what what love looks like and all of that. So uh, I think one of my favorite parts of learning from my brother about the Old Testament is that every story, whether it's Esther or Job or whatever, like we often kind of laud those people as heroes. And we take that the point is to learn more about them and how to like model our faith after theirs. When in reality, like all of those stories are pointing to something about God. And so we need to figure out what that piece is and use that to like shape whatever decision making we have that day. So I I think for me, it's it's the process of learning more about what God thinks and what God would do and then figuring out like how that plays out practically for me. Joy, that feels pretty right, right? Because like you understand one's character and then though it is not expressly... Um, or it's not expressly clear what one may do in a certain situation, you can still have a pretty good idea. Like, John, I can get to know you and who you are, the things you are for, the things you are against. And I think the better I come to know you, even though I've never seen you, what you may do in a particular situation or that exact situation, I can still have a pretty good idea, the better I know you, how you would respond. 
it still leaves me a, a hanging question, though, because because of the the, the, the notion that, uh, I mean, of course, the Old Testament prophets spoke against systems all the time. So so you have a lot there. Well, one thing I will say real quick is uh, to jump in here. I think this is where I think someone like Bonhoeffer is extremely helpful because he he was such a boots on the ground ethicist. You know what I mean? I think that I think his phrase was where he kind of says ethics is the 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 reality of God meeting the reality of the world. And I think that has to happen, right? Because a lot of us either have one or the other. We're just trying to meet the reality of the world without, you know, Jesus incarnate, or, you know, we're just like in the ivory tower, which he was. I mean, he was, you know, he was a, a academic um, without letting it come to the, the real place. And so I just think that, you know, tends to be, and, and the way he talks about ethics is so much more active. I think a lot of us think ethics is like, you know, the right answer, the wrong answer. When he was, you know, he even, when you get into some of his writing, he even kind of argues, not that it's relative, but God is very specific to very specific situations that you have to be spirit led. And that obedience for you will be different from some obedience from someone else in that moment, in this place. And without it being kind of this living and active ethic, um, I think we do miss out on a, on, a, on a lot of that. And you have to extrapolate from the principles that can't be changed, but for your moment. Yeah. I love, I love that what we even came to here, I think signifies the freedom that I experience in this faith walk, right? That this is not like a collection of rules and regulations, but this is some kind of like crazy journey that takes boldness and courage and faith. And it's gonna, it might be different here than it was yesterday. And because I'm growing and I'm like leaning on God more, or I'm, you know, sort of letting stuff go. I'm, I'm, I don't know, like my, my choices within, within, (laughs) within some general boundaries, you know, there's, there's room for the, for the growth from the wrong answers or the difficulties. And there's room for the, like, I don't know, the be excited about like, like the joys that can come from maybe the, the right answer. I don't know. It just, it feels like knowing that it's not something that there are wrong answers all the time and there are right answers all the time. And I'm going to try to stay in the right. So I'm going to be in this very like rigid legalistic way as opposed to like, you know, there are some principles, but like within those principles are like the color of my life and we'll figure it out. Within the principles are the color of my life. Woo, that's poetic. Calvin, what's happening out there, brother? All right, all right. Well, we got some headlines for you. And of course, like every show, just want to bring you a few headlines of what's going on out in the world. All right, so President Trump signed an executive order on Tuesday to encourage, but not mandate, changes in policing. It restricted chokeholds and gave police departments financial incentives to train officers on the use of physical force. The order omits any mention of race or discrimination, uh, the central issues that have animated the current calls for revamping law enforcement. Senate Republicans are planning to introduce a bill on Wednesday to address several policing reforms that hundreds of thousands of protesters across the nation are demanding. The bill will include requirements for police departments to provide more data to the Justice Department on serious injuries and deaths, um, a call for increased training for officers, and reduce funding for agencies that do not have a ban on chokeholds. The bill will not address qualified immunity, uh, the protection that shields police and other public officials from lawsuits if accused of misconduct. Also, June 17th marks the fifth year anniversary of the Emanuel AME Church murders, when white supremacist Dylan Roof killed nine worshipers assembled for Bible study after sitting and praying with them. 
to commemorate the tragic event. A video tribute to the victims from family members and survivors will appear on the church's Facebook page uh, and YouTube channel on Wednesday evening, followed by March for Justice on Sunday and a prayer vigil on June 24th. Reverend Eric S.C. Manning, who has led Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church since 2016, said every year on June 17th, the church feels a sense of tension born out of reliving that tragic day, but that there is a glimmer of hope resulting from the national protests kindled by the death of George Floyd. Reverend Manning said, and I quote, we are all encouraged that the issue of racial injustice is on the forefront. Now, it's a matter of not just talking about it, but taking action. And lastly, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said that the state has no plans to roll back its reopening efforts after reporting Tuesday uh, its highest single-day increase in coronavirus cases since the pandemic began. Florida has broken its single-day new case record three times over the past week, with 2,783 cases reported Tuesday setting a new high. Uh, in a news conference, DeSantis denied that the state's aggressive reopening was a major contributor to the surge in cases and pushed back against questions whether the state might need to reverse course uh, on reopening, saying, and I quote, we're not shutting down. DeSantis said that he will not make it a requirement uh, to wear a mask in public, and he left the news conference before answering a reporter's question as to whether masks should be worn at the upcoming Republican National Convention events in Jacksonville. So there you have it, a few stories of what is going on out there. And now for our next segment with our friends at Christianity Today, over to you, Joy Beth. Hi, guys. So we are here with more poll data from our Christianity Today audience, which is always super exciting. Uh, the question that we asked this week was, what's your relationship to church right now? And how has physical distance from your church affected you? So when we're looking at the results, we have 70% of people are actually still watching online. So despite a lot of states, I'm here in North Carolina right now, they are wide open, Florida's wide open. There are lots of states where either churches are opening as a whole or at least doing smaller gatherings in person. Uh, but we actually still see 70% of people watching online, which is a good chunk. 20% uh, are actually heading back to church, so one-fifth. And then we had a lot of these other kind of outlying circumstances, which were probably the most interesting part of the responses that I got. So in the responses, there were kind of two themes. So what I was expecting when I asked this question was that we would get an overwhelming amount of people who said, I really miss my physical church. I really miss people. I can't wait to hug people. And while we definitely got some of that the majority of the responses broke out in one of two ways. So either a lot of people voiced that distance has allowed them to better see their church and the weaknesses of their church, which is a really interesting kind of development that sort of without the relational aspect clouding their vision, they're able to better see how their church handles things. Um, and then also looking for a new church feels more important right now, but also way more difficult. So a few of the key quotes uh, that I felt kind of applied to these themes. The first is from Carrie Jean, and she said, I've seen how poorly my mostly white evangelical megachurch has handled race issues over the last month. And after talking to pastors and staff, I've decided it's no longer a good fit for me spiritually. Having space from the church because of COVID allowed me to see things in a new light that I might not have otherwise been able to see. And Julie says something similar. She said that the time away from church has highlighted pre-COVID problems in my relationship with my church that need to be addressed instead of tolerated. And then David, finally, as he 
he's describing his church, he says that his relationship is with it is strained and that it's hamstrung my ability to find a congregation which is a better fit and in which I may use my gifts. So there's just this resounding theme of people either taking issue with their churches or being unable to find a church that is a good fit without having this like in-person element. So my question for all of you is, uh, so for those of us that are struggling as we're separated from our church or as we're faced with the new reality of how our church isn't meeting our expectations, how do we move forward in a healthy, productive way without just this being something that festers inside of us or uh, moves into kind of um, unproductive, maybe anger or something that just sees but doesn't actually produce any fruit? Yeah, our our church is reopening. A lot of churches are reopening uh, and have been. And, uh, you know, for us, we've, we've been gathering with a small group of a few other families that we're really close to and watching online and eating brunch together. And that has been really sweet. Now, it is not for me, it has not actually made me less appreciative of my church. I mean, we really love our church and think that they're doing amazing stuff, but it's given me a different way to interact with our church for sure. And, uh, and, and kind of rethinking like, all right, how many large gatherings do we need? Do we need to go every week? Maybe we should be doing this more. Um, so just it's causing me to think about that. Joy Beth, what do you think? We got to, you know, you can't just drop the nugget. You got to, you got to give your opinion too. Remember we said last week, you're going to go first. Oh, that's right. I'm so glad my <laughs> heart's already racing. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, I think that this actually dovetails really nicely with what Jeff was talking about earlier with accountability and sort of uh, providing an opportunity for us to hold our churches accountable. And there are a lot of mediocre white evangelical churches. And not just That's not just mediocre right white there. churches. It's true. <laughs> Middle of the road. road. Yeah, there are not, also great not churches. Not that awesome and not that terrible. <laughs> so I, I do think that there are a lot of mediocre yeah. churches. And uh, if what... The pandemic and everything after the pandemic uh, or everything that's going on right now, I guess, what if what that incites is sort of a mass exodus from churches that have relied on like platitudes and potlucks, yeah. then I am really glad for it. I think it's great. I think that this is a blessing, if you will. You know what? That that's a good needs, one. I, I agree. That, that needs a bumper sticker. Platitudes and potlucks. I love the alliteration. I love it, Joy Beth. But it is true, though. There's a lot of um. They, they, at some level, this moment for the church is a little bit of a, a reckoning, you know, and a little bit of like won't won't be different on the other side. Yeah, I, I do think people have to be cognizant of like Christians out of anyone should not be the people just demanding in anger that something go back to the way it was. Like we are literally the people of new possibilities. We're the people of grace. We're the people of faith. It's like, why would we not trust that something cool might happen, you know? And I think there is some churches that are leaning into that of like, oh, if this is happening, how can we let the spirit creatively, like I know one church here in Hawaii, uh, they were on a five-year plan to actually get rid of Sunday gatherings. That was like part of their vision. They just never wanted to, they 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 just, God put it on their heart to not do Sunday gatherings anymore. They were going to meet different ways and blah, 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 do more vision days once a month. And then the five-year plan turned into a six-week plan because they had that vision six weeks before coronavirus. And they just said, yeah, well, we're not going back. It's just accelerate it and we're done. And move on to the new vision. So I think if you kind of can actually step into the moment, receive it for what it is, not just, yeah, the the spirit of just like anger and I want to go back to the way it was, I think is a very problematic combination, especially in the people of of God. But I I will say that that phrase of stepping into it, right? I wonder, again, completely understand why I think people may want to seek a new faith community and all for finding a place where you feel challenged, spiritually fed, you know what I mean? That, that, really embraces you and takes care of you as well as a place where you can pour out into. But I think we should also be cognizant of, of like who we are and where we are, right? We, like this is this is the Western model of church, which which has been 
consumeristic at times, right? And so there is often, we also struggle with what it looks like to, to find a community that is imperfect, right? That may be mediocre and then actually be the catalyst that could change that place, right? And so rather, I think it's also, it also opens up a conversation of like, okay, how do we discern, is this my time to move communities, right? Like some people are feeling led to do, or is this okay? Like, yeah, things do need to change. And is this, am I part of that change? Am I someone who can instigate that change because I do see where we should be and where we're not right now? This reminds me a lot of dating. And so I <laughs> I date a lot and that makes it sound bad. It's not a lot. You know, I date some. No shame. Sorry, it's fine. Yeah, you get it, no Joy shame. Yeah. yeah, that's right. No shame. Yeah. Uh, so it, but you do, you like, find, you have to find someone where, you know, I think we all expect something like really magical to happen and for it to be like this dawning awareness of like, this is the church or this is the person, you know, and then you enter into a relationship and you realize that it's actually like requires a lot more work, but it feels impossible. That moment of discernment feels impossible of what is an appropriate amount of work and investment and hard. And then what's too hard, what's requiring too much of you, what is too large of a concession that you're not willing to make. I think that I struggle with that across the board. Yeah. Yeah. It's less about finding church and dating. The answer is less about finding the magical unicorn and about finding the least worst person. That's basically our goal. (laughs) Just find the least worst person, find the least worst church and the Lord will take care of it. That's my new wedding card. I married the least worst person. No, but it, it's good because, I mean, the truth is if you're going into a relationship or with your church or with, you know, a, a, a significant other that you think is not going to take all your time, guess what? You know, you're you're in the wrong business. Um, so, like, you know, I think that kind of has to be off the table, right? Like, because either you're willing, either you're going in willing to say, like, all right, I, this is where I feel led. So I'm going to sew into this. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my effort. I'm going to give my attention. I'm going to try to sew into it and give whatever God's asking me to give. Like, and so if that's if that's the case, then fine. You take that off the table because you're going to give wherever you're going. But I would say this this time does feel like a clean break for a lot of people. Because I think what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that they've quite honestly been wanting to get out for a while. But when it comes to, you know, the assigned seats or the seats that the the seat that you, the the pew that you and your family have sat in for years and the people that you see every week, I mean, a lot of people are going because they dig the people or at least because it's some measure of comfort. But, you know, I think, I mean, my heart goes out to people who feel like finally I'm able to check out another church because it's like, well, wait, was it that the Holy Spirit was trying to lead you someplace before? but you felt like bound by something. And now there's just like a whole lot of freedom and and you just like want to go. And I think that's great. Like be obedient, but let's, let's not make these same mistakes twice then. Right. It's like, if the Holy spirit was trying to get you to a place of freedom before was trying to get you someplace before, like take this freedom and, you know, go wherever you're being led, but let's, let's make the time between when the Holy spirit says something and you move like shorter. So that your whole life doesn't have to transform because of Corona, you know? We have definitely been saying in our family, let's make sure we understand the things that we dropped because of COVID that need to stay gone. And let's make sure that we we understand the things that we've embraced and started that need to keep going. And so mm-hmm. like as a family, we've been looking at it that way. And, and maybe that's part of what the church needs to be doing now. It's like, hey, what got kind of like dealt with that needs to just stay dead? 
and and leave that alone? And what are some of the new things that are birthed that we really need to pour into those things? Mm. The word actually that's been on my heart is like metamorphosis. Like we we are going through an evolution, a change, right? And and whether that's as American people, we're getting closer to to the aspirational values that were outlined in the Declaration, or even as people of faith, right? Like we're coming into something new and getting closer to where we we ultimately are going. But like I think, are we even open to coming into something new? And I wonder, as people of faith, like can we? Yes, coming into something new is is always. A little unnerving, right? We're uneasy because we don't know exactly what it's going to look like for all of us. It's, it's even hard to imagine. But if we can trust, again, going back to this idea of the character of God, right? Like if we can trust in the fact that he says he finishes what he started and he's for your good, that He he's always for you and wants the best for you, can we be a little more comfortable, at least at peace of an open-handed to whatever this transformation, this metamorphosis is? That is a lot, which reminds me of um, this idea of awakening America, right? Doesn't it sort of? I mean, we started we started this a couple years ago, guys, and we did not know. But Marissa has a book on this topic. <laughs> yeah, no, I love this conversation. And I love, again, this this idea of as we're going into something new, what are we really being intentional about holding on to? And again, our book, American Awakening. Right, which is uh, which is available for pre-order that we are going through every Friday, chapter by chapter. I want you guys to definitely come back um, in a couple of days for our next show. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, sneak peek. I, I hate giving spoilers, but purpose. So any of y'all who have been struggling around that concept or really you know thinking through, especially now with so much changing, please come back. We're going to have a fantastic guest. We're going to chew on on lots of ideas of purpose. But yeah. Pre-order the book wherever you buy the coolest books on the planet, Amazon, Walmart.com, you know, all sorts of good places. You can also go to our website um, to find out about the book, get direct links um, and more, you know, more of the cool stuff we're doing. But again, we're all about um, partnering with God to, again, figure out what's the life that's truly life and what are the things that have gone before us that in this time of transition we can hold on to and that can take us to a place that we really want to go. So get the book and come back with us in a couple of days. We'll have a good time. Back to you, John. Thank you so much, Marissa. And, and look, uh, you know, uh, everybody in this group um, knows, everybody who listens for a while out there uh, knows, I'm I'm a... I'm a guy that uh, struggles to find conviction of the path forward. I mean, I, I believe in in, in, uh, in the eternal verities. I believe in their application to the moment, how it plays out in each one of our lives specifically. I'm a little um, fuzzy. Um, sometimes I'm even agnostic. I'm like, oh God, what are you showing us? And so I'm a little, I, you know, I'm a little hesitant to just proclaim like, okay, God, uh, you set us up for this moment because that's that's a lot for me to sort of name and claim and all that. But I will say that all the words we were just talking about, about are we ready for something new, do we not want to go back, are exactly what the book and this whole movement is about, about finding the new and not going back, calling the things of the past that are still good, as Joel was talking about, but the things that are supposed to be dead, let them stay dead, and let's find the new new, and as Marissa likes to say, the good good. You know what? You better preach today. <laughs> you better preach today. And uh, speaking of a guy uh, that brought the new, new and the best, best under the circumstances, um, this guy, Abraham Lincoln, our man, Jeff Bethke, has got a, uh, a film line of the day. 
That's right. Like we, I think we mentioned even a couple of weeks ago too, uh, you know, his team arrivals and rivals, stuff like that. Fascinating stuff that I think we need more right now in this moment. But the movie, if you haven't seen it, is awesome. Who did this? Isn't Spielberg do the movie? I think, right? He did. Yeah. Awesome movie. But like always, Marissa picked a killer line from the movie. So without further ado, a little line from Lincoln. We're stepped out upon the world stage now. Now! With the fate of human dignity in our hands. Blood's been spilt to afford us this moment. Now! 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 And you grousel and heckle and dodge about like pettifogging Tammany Hall hucksters. See what is before you. See the here and now. That's the hardest thing. The only thing that accounts. Oh, so good. Thank you very much, uh, Joy Beth, everybody, for being with us. We're going to have uh, Josh Jacob close us out. You know what? I, I don't even want to – I'm not going to come back after Josh Jacob today because I just want Josh Jacob just to play us out. And then we, yeah, we say – in the glory. And, right, exactly. Right. Take us in the glory, JBJ. I got nothing to say after whatever you're going to play. Everyone is their obsession. Consuming thoughts, consuming time. Possessions that it finds the meaning of their lives. You are mine, you are mine, you are mine, oh mine, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine. of affection that can mesmerize the soul there is always one addiction that just cannot be controlled Life is produced by American Awakening, a campaign for the soul of America committed to slaying the giant of death and despair in this American moment. Signs of Life is made up of Jefferson Bethke, Dan Hazeltine, Josh Jacob, John Kingston, Joel Searby, Calvin Lee, Christian Palacios, Marina Pappas, Andy Peterson, and me, Marissa Prince. The show is produced from our headquarters in Lexington, Massachusetts, And you can learn a whole lot more about the movement by visiting our website, AmericanAwakening.us. Relevant Podcast Network.